What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Talking About Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Olinger, even though I was not your host last week. Uh, huge thanks to Sean and Jackson for basically filling in for me. It was having, having a rough time. Finals week crossed with not feeling well. It was just a, a rough concurrence of events. But much like Shake Milton in Game 2, I am back. I was going through a down stretch, but I, I'm coming back roaring today. Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, I called it your load management week. So you're <laughs> you're rested up. You're ready to go for the stretch run. Um, yeah, your shake is your spirit animal. So he I, that I was like losing my mind during all of those threes because he just needed one to fall. And shake is a guy where you can see the confidence like on his face. Like when he kept missing all those shots in the first round, you could see the confidence lose him. Like you could see visibly his confidence just dwindling, and that he didn't want to take shots anymore. He didn't feel like himself. Like Shake is a very, I would he is like kind of outwardly emotional for a player, right? I think Joel Embiid would would agree with you there. Yeah, yeah, and like my point is that just like he really just needed that first one to fall right when the Hawks had taken the lead. He hits that step back three, and then just the floodgates opened from there. Because once he was feeling his shot, like he just kept making them. That's all they needed basically. Because the Hawks started to struggle scoring for a little bit, and he literally the Shake. Like, Shake didn't just win them the game. I mean, the main reason they won is that Joel Embiid had 40 points and he's awesome. <laughs> but Shake Milton, like, I mean, credit to Doc, he said, like, Shake's going to win us the game. I don't know if Shake won them that game, but he was definitely one of the big reasons and why they won when they were still in a very close game at the end of the third quarter. I, I will say I don't think they win that game unless Shake Milton comes alive like he did. If he continues to struggle and it's the first – six games of the playoffs version of shake Milton. I don't think they win that game. Um, the Sixers at, at for as well as Embiid had been playing all game. It was still like a one possession game late in the third quarter. And everyone was just thinking, Oh no, here come the bench minutes that they're going to have to get through and who knows what can happen. And then doc inserts shake into the game because Tyrese had been struggling as had the entire bench in the oh, first half. Well, if we're talking about guys who are struggling off the bench, like, what are the odds we see Furkan <laughs> in game three? I'd say pretty low. Furkan uh, is having a – he had, like, a few good moments, especially in game four when him and Maxi almost helped bring them back. But, like, man, what was it? The second quarter sequence where I think it was air ball – or, no, it was, like, missed floater, foul, air ball, all in, like, 30 seconds for Furkan. Yeah, he was a, a minus 11 in his first four minutes Oof. in game two. It was it was really rough. Um, but, but I mentioned Tyrese just because – it seems like they were kind of one. If one guy was going, the other guy was left out of the rotation. They seem to me the direct <laughs> replacement for each other so far in this postseason. Um, so yeah, when when Tyrese didn't have it going, it's 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 
it was kind of a breaking case of emergency situation for Doc, and he brings Shake out onto the court, and yeah, the rest is history. I mean, hit his first four threes, and then he took the heat check of all heat checks. Again, which was... totally, totally worth it. Like, <laughs> I do not fault him at all for that. That was the right decision there. You have to just check. I mean, I, I can't even imagine if that contested 30-footer oh. pull-up had gone in. Um, I don't uh, know what would have happened in the Wells Fargo Center. I think it, it would have been like the Kevin Durant Rucker game where the fans just charged the stand, charged the court during the middle of the game, like they yes. stop the game completely. It very well could have. Um, but yeah, like getting back to your point about Shake get like getting in his own head a little bit, I think that it's kind of exacerbated by the fact that Tyrese had been playing so well mm-hmm. in round one and Shake's he could see his his spot in the rotation just falling away and then he, he eventually wasn't even in it anymore so for a young guy who you know already has had some good moments in the league but he's not an established player by any means he, he kind of views this as like hey this is my chance to you know be an impactful player in the postseason to really kind of make my mark in this league and then to just really be struggling as immensely as he was I, I could see how like a, a negative mindset kind of snowball and you could just press too much and that makes you struggle even more and it all kind of the problems compound on themselves so yeah it was just great to to see him finally make some shots get get that confidence flowing and it couldn't have come at a better time for the Sixers yeah and like with the confidence thing it makes sense like I mean obviously each person is different individually and that's probably a part of who Shake is but also He's been asked all season to basically carry the bench offense as the initiator. And you have to think, Shake then thinks in his head, okay, my role is to just, I'm supposed to go out there and get buckets for a few times. That is my role. That's how I help this team. Doc has put it on me in these all bench lineups that I am the guy I'd like to score. So then when his shot isn't falling, like Shake knows he's not out there to be, he, to be like the lockdown defender. Shake knows he isn't the floor spacer, the screener, the rebounder, you know, like Matisse can't score, but Matisse knows what his value is, is that like I scare other guards defensively because they f- are freaked out by arms. And like hasn't been a great playoffs for Matisse, although I will say that Trey on block on the floater, like that basically wrapped the game up, like uh, incredible block. But it's, I, tweet, uh, I tweeted it was one of the most cathartic blocks. He just he came <laughs> out of nowhere because usually we're used to him coming from behind, but he was just like on the weak side and he just decided I'm getting it this time. And it was probably like very felt very good to Matisse too because he keeps getting called for all those fouls on um, every time he tries to guard Trey, which sorry. so so frustrating. <laughs> if you just heard me slam a water bottle, there was a spider on my desk, and I think I killed him. This is great live podcasting. I just assumed it was your anger at the <laughs> the challenge not being overturned on in game one there because i understand some of them like when matisse reaches down like i might not like the call but i understand it there are some where matisse has his hands up and trey is just throwing himself into him and those are the ones where like okay that's not okay it's also why you have someone like ben out there because i think ben gets a little more respect from the refs in that sense they're a little less willing to call that um and we'll talk about that too like guarding trey uh i think it's pretty clear it has to be ben like Definitely can't be Danny Green. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, yeah, it's got to be Ben and then Matisse. Um, yeah, spot Matisse a few minutes, but it's mainly ben, Ben's job in the series is you're on Trey Young duty. Exactly. Uh, yeah, th- but those Matisse fouls on Trey, Matisse is playing perfect defense. He's keeping his hands to himself. He's sliding alongside Trey. 
Trey will then like diagonally back into Matisse and stop. And or his other move is to suddenly lower his shoulder and stick it into Matisse to go into the airspace that Matisse is currently occupying. Like mm-hmm. and and Matisse gets called for the fouls. It's incredibly frustrating. I don't know how else you're supposed to play defense. So the NBA saying after Doc talked to them about that challenge that that was a justified foul call like they might as well just be saying like you can't play defense in the league anymore because I don't know what else you could do as a defender well, I, I guess your option is like you have to be like what Ben does sometimes which is just completely state like you're not even on his side like Ben is completely in front of him sometimes which is what you have to do is that you can't let him turn that corner at all because once he does he's either getting the foul or like throwing up for a lob or something like that so which is obviously incredibly difficult to do it's what they're asking of you but yeah I guess that's that's what's gonna have to be um so like what was going through your head in game one and in game two because like obviously game one that first half probably first game probably couldn't have gone any worse especially in the first half and then game two come out strong quarters two and three they're lagging and then quarter the fourth end of the third early fourth they take over and like how after watching those two games, does your thoughts on how the series will go overall change at all? No, I, I won't say that it ever changed. Um, game one, obviously, they fall behind by 26. I chalked it up to, okay, Danny Green can't guard Trey. Yes. So hopefully Doc, this is just what I was thinking during game one. So I'm thinking hopefully Doc now knows that and he'll never do it again, which it seems like that'll be the case so that that's good and also just the all bench lineup and their disastrous four minutes or so in the the early part of game one it felt like 24 minutes yeah there there was about nine minutes where there was like tobias was out there with the bench guys and either i think it was either joel or ben was out there for the bench guys with a couple minutes and all of those minutes were bad but the the four minutes of the all bench lineup was especially bad. Um, well, what happened in game one is that the Sixers bench usually loses their minutes, but usually the starters have won by enough that it doesn't even matter. It's like, oh, they're just the other team's closing in on the lead, and this is fine. But the Hawks got off to a really hot shooting start, and Trey was playing great in the first quarter. So the Hawks, like, I think the Hawks starters just barely beat out the Sixers starters in that first stint. And then you send the all bench lamp in, the other team is rolling. And it's the Sixers bench, which usually loses. So it's like a very – it was like all concurrence of everything happening at the same time the Sixers didn't want. Um, I actually did want to throw this stat at you. So the Sixers starting lineup in 225 playoff possessions, what do you think their net rating is, according to Cleaning the Glass? Their net rating? Um, so how, much, how much they're outscoring teams per 100 possessions? Like plus 15? Plus 39.5. <laughs> Wow. Now, a lot of that probably can be attributed to oh my gosh, Wizards in game two, three games two and three. Yeah, I should like, I should have factored out the Wizards. In they did murder them in both those <laughs> games, but like they're scoring one hundred and forty four point nine points per one hundred in those games, and also a big part of that is that Embiid. Like, we have to talk. Embiid is just unreal. Like, it's it's still like I still remember one of our very first podcasts of the regular season where. I was saying I was concerned like, oh, they're basically their offense right now is Joel bails them out with some incredibly difficult shot. I'm like, that's going to regress at some point. No, <laughs> it just never came. It's like, oh, Joel's just he's this good now. It's, it's really a sec- it's the second round of the postseason and he's still doing it. Yeah, it's 
it's amazing to watch Joel work right now. He 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 has more little tricks that he's developed with his footwork to just create just enough space for himself. And as a seven footer, he can generally get a shot off when he wants. So he he only needs the the smallest amount of room. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he's now like a fifty five percent shooter from outside the paint. Uh, is incredible and he's shooting 42 percent on threes in the playoffs like Embiid in his previous playoffs had shot 27.6 percent from three 30.8 percent from three 27 like Embiid has not shot well from three in the playoffs he's at four he's at 43 percent actually in the playoffs from three that is like what are you supposed to do when Joel Embiid just hits a transition three in your face <laughs> like I guess not- you're supposed I guess you're supposed to rim run as hard as you can the other end and hope that he isn't able to get catch up with you because i don't know what else you can do but He's yeah joe real he he really is i mean he deserves a lot of credit i mean he had a, an incredible season shooting from three during the regular season too he shot uh almost 38 percent um so i think all those people that are talk he did cut down on his attempts slightly the last two years so i think when people are like oh get in the paint there's something to be said in that he shouldn't be jacking up contested shots from out there, but he he's kind of refined his shot selection ever so slightly. And you can see there's times where he, he does his little pump fake and you, the thought is going through his head that, oh, I could shoot right here, but you know what? Let me do the take the couple dribbles in, back my man down, just because I feel like that's a little bit better shot for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so he does that a decent amount too. So... I just think his game is so refined at this point that he's so punishing on the interior. He can get those mid-range shots whenever he wants. He draws fouls about 15 different ways on guys. And as you mentioned, he's a, he's a very good outside shooter now as well. Like that he's, he has a torn meniscus and he's averaging 39 and a half points. Yeah, we, we, probably <laughs> have, we probably should have mentioned that part. Like, yeah. Wow. Um, no, it's it's like because everyone talks about how no matter if he makes it or not, whenever Giannis shoots a three, the defense like gives a little fist pump. That's a victory. That's exactly what you want. Yeah. And that used to be the case for Embiid. Like I would say his sophomore, junior seasons in the NBA, like Embiid takes a three, the defense is thinking we did our job. That's good. I don't, I don't care if he makes it. It's fine. Now it's like, well, like, yeah, we'll take it. But it's not necessarily a victory if he shoots a three because there's a good chance he's about to make it. So yeah, that's the difference between he used to be a 30% shooter from yeah. three and now he's a 38% shooter and, and, now, and now he's a 43% and now and in the playoffs. postseason he's 43. Yeah, he has, he has a true shooting percentage over 70 right now. That is like the usually the guys with true shooting percentages percentages over 70 are like DeAndre Jordan Mitchell Robinson, you know, like rim running centers who are only dunking the dunks are their only shots. And Embiid is very much not that. Embiid is the Embiid is not necessarily the heliocentric center of the Sixers offense, but pretty close to like heliocentric in a different way. Like everything does revolve around Joel. I mean, yeah, you can when he goes out of the game, the the offense oftentimes kind of devolves, and that's a big reason why the Sixers fall apart in the non-Joel minutes. Even now with the, the roster as improved as it is, they, they still are having trouble when he's on the bench. And it's just because A, he's so good and everything they've done to center the offense is around him. But B, a lot of the, the guys they brought onto the roster are guys who 
are there to complement Joel. So, yeah, Seth Curry can do some creative playmaking stuff on his own, and he's been great at doing that kind of stuff. But ideally, that's that's not going to carry an offense. And you got like the Danny Greens of the world who are very much like a the spot up role player who isn't going to create offense for himself. You're throwing guys like Matisse out there who can't do anything offensively really. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's hard. And a lot of the burden falls on Tobias in those instances. And that's why doc has gone to the Tobias plus bench units now. And that seems to be what he's going to stick with um, moving forward um, because Tobias is one of the few guys on the team that can actually create a little something for himself off the dribble. No, and Tobias, like, I liked what they did at the start of game two, basically saying, with DeAndre Hunter out, you guys don't have anyone really strong enough to contain Tobias inside, and Capella's not going to be near the rim if we just move Embiid out to the little mid-range area, because he's not going to loot, he's not going to stray away from Embiid, basically. So we can just let Tobias try and live at the rim and get going that way. And it was just a good way to get started. I do like it sometimes they basically just let Tobias attack with his strength because there are very few forwards with his ball handling skills and his size that can get to that little short mid range in the rim. Like they want to, Um, we did mention, you did mention Danny green. So we already talked about defensively and Danny is not shooting well at the moment, which when Danny's getting lit up on defense and not shooting well, do you know what else Danny Green does? I mean, he had eight assists somehow in game two, but it didn't feel like, <laughs> a like a career high. Not and not just for the playoffs. It was a any game in the NBA career high eight assists for Danny Green. I mean, love it, but like I don't think Danny Green's like a pick and roll operator now. So um, yeah, uh, it, it was a lot of uh, like assists. Like one more passes. Yeah, like one more passes. I was going to say hockey assists, but they're not high. Like yeah. he was creating hockey assists for other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't like, yeah, he can't guard Trey. So we've moved on from that, but I think, I, th- I think he did a pretty good job on Bogdanovich. And then it was when Seth started getting hunted by the Hawks, um, by Herder. And then they switched Danny onto Herder and then Bogdanovich got a couple off against Seth. Um, so I, I, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't, it's not like Danny, what can Danny do for us? I still think he's a good wing defender. I just don't think it can be on Trey. Yeah, so, I mean, the best thing with Seth is just if Solomon Hill is out there, hide him on Hill because, right. oh boy, Solomon Hill can't hit a shot right now. And I'm very much in favor of the Hawks playing him as much as they can because when they go to that lineup where they put in Kevin Herter for him, like, Seth can't hide on Herter and he can't hide on Bogdanovich. And suddenly there's nowhere left for Seth to hide because they don't want him on Trey either, which is a problem just because Herter and Bogdanovich, they're pretty good. They have size, like... I mean, that's, I wanted to talk about those two wings. Like, they're playing really well, both of them. Bogdanovich, like, that one shot Bogdanovich hit to basically put the Hawks up by six in game one when the Sixers were roaring back, like, that is a tough, tough shot that he hit. Yeah, the the silence, the crowd shot. Yeah, like, I think I tweeted, Bogdanovich is a killer. And, like, you've heard all these stories. If you've followed him or, like, follow people who've talked about Bogdanovich, like, He's been in the EuroLeague for a while, and he was a guy who, like, all, hit a lot of clutch shots, had a reputation as, like, never afraid of the moment, very confident all the time. Like, and it's just, I mean, I don't know what else to say, but, like, the Hawks are really good. I, those wings they have around Trey, Trey obviously is what everything orbits around. He's been fantastic. But then you have guys like Bogdanovich and Herter who are just making all these shots. And, like, they could have been even better if they had, I mean, DeAndre Hunter's now out for the season with 
So like, isn't DeAndre have a torn meniscus too? But his obviously is like worse than Embiid's, and that's why. Yes. He's yeah, he, he's having surgery, so mm-hmm. I guess it was just torn to the point where you couldn't play through it, or it would make it worse if you tried to play through it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, tough blow for them because he would be the perfect. Uh, he'd be a perfect guy for to combat the Sixers just with his, you know, size and speed combo. He he would be a great person to put against Tobias or uh, he could actually be on Ben some and do do a good job there as well no yeah but like this is one stat I found so I was just looking through some stuff it was mainly when I was looking at Embiid stuff so there are only four players in the playoffs shooting over 40 percent from three on at least three attempts per game while also having a true shooting percentage over 70 it is Joel Embiid James Harden Kawhi Leonard and Kevin Herter like quite the list of names there yeah, Herb's been terrific. Um, yeah, you mentioned the Bogdanovich's, you know, overseas history. Uh, Paolo Ugetti for The Ringer had a really nice piece uh, the other day about how he had a, a similar game-winning shot where he, he shushed, shushed the crowd just mm-hmm. like he did in game one to the Sixers the Sixers arena. Um, he's been great, and, and Herder has been really, really good. And I would expect a lot more Herder and a lot less Solomon Hill like we saw in game two, because I don't really know what Hill brings to the table. I, I would expect it. <laughs> I will su- kindly suggest to Nate McMillan more <laughs> Solomon Hill, like all give me all of the Solomon Hill minutes. Yeah. That, that seems like an easy adjustment for them because you don't have to worry about, it doesn't seem like Ben's going to be ultra aggressive. So you can put Collins on, on Harris and, yeah, he's he's probably not quick enough to stick with Tobias, but at least he'll be able to cut down on those like back you up bully ball st- plays that Tobias likes to do when he has a wing on him. And then you can just have them maximize the shooting on the offensive end. Um, and then you can kind of hunt who you want against Seth if you're the Hawks. Um, and with Hill, you just don't have enough like ball handling, playmaking threats out there. Uh, but as you do when you have Herder, uh Bogdanovich and, and Trey all on the court at the same time. Well, I tell you what John Collins can't do is John Collins should just stay as far away from Embiid as possible. But <laughs> every time Embiid gets a foul on him, every time he catches the ball, if Collins is near me, John Collins puts his hand down and Embiid ripped through uh, either a closer foul to a bonus or he's going to the foul line. It, it just happened every single time in both games one and two. And like John Collins shot well from three in game one, which pretty much everyone on the Hawks did. So I mean, he's still done fine enough at that, and he had that big dunk at the end. But, like, Collins looks scared to put it on the floor. Like, his handle does not look tight at all. And then just defensively, yeah, like, he's just, like, Embiid's been going after all of them, and it's obviously, like, none of them have an answer. But John Collins especially, like, he just can't be anywhere near him. I It was kind of like a, a kid that just will not stop reaching in the cookie jar, no mm-hmm. matter, like, dinner is 15 minutes away, and he's yeah. really hungry. But it just keeps reaching in, and you got to keep slapping his hand away. That was John Collins defending Embiid. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know why he was surprised to be repeatedly called for, for those fouls. Um, I, I do want to give him props. You said the dunk, like that was an impressive dunk in in person. I like visibly, I audibly gasped. Oh yeah, what was the? Let's talk about that. I've 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 just got back to Philadelphia the other day. What was the crowd like for? So we're at games one and two. We're just one of them. I was at both. Yeah. Okay. Uh, crowd crowd's been incredible. They 
even in game one, when Sixers were down 20 plus for a good portion of the game, anytime there was, okay, they, they made a stop and got a big score and made another stop. Crowd was right back in it. It was like, all right, let's get this going. Let's, uh, you know, we can, we can do this, just get it back to 12 or whatever. There was that there's constant energy. As long as there was a couple plays in a row going the Sixers way, they were right back in it. They didn't give up on them. I, I think if it, that hadn't been the case, we wouldn't have seen that, that near incredible comeback towards the end mm-hmm. of game one. Uh, they, they've been awesome. Um, very, very anti-refs. It's, <laughs> it's, it's funny. Anytime, anytime the refs make a call they're, the refs you suck stuff is coming out the one time they even called the foul on the Hawks, but they said it happened before MB dunked. So it was like, they, they went to the scorers table to, to kind of review the play and they said, all right, foul, foul on Atlanta. I, th- I think it was Collins or, or a, a Kongwu or someone, I forget who exactly, but they st- still did the refs you suck chant because they don't. They were. They didn't know what to do, and the default setting was all right. We just got to go back to the refs. You saw. Hey, Philly fans are smart. They understand the valuation of how how important free throws are to like your offensive efficiency. So, I I think that that's just them being prudent. It it's just their default state. And to to their credit, the refs have been pretty awful through the first two games I, of the series. I mean, like yeah, there are some calls I disagree with. There is no excuse like ref excuse in game one though. Like. Oh, I'm not don't, saying it's the reason they yeah, lost. Yeah, like don't get down by 30 <laughs> in the second quarter. That's that's your own fault. Yes. I I tweeted that uh my main takeaway from game one is to not wait until you're down 26 to start doing the right things. That's that's um, I mean, the people have said this before. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's an old adage, but a true one. Um yeah, I, I'm not saying the rest have been the reason they lost game one by any means. I mean the reasons were Danny Green cannot guard Trey Young. It was kind of dumb to even try it. And Men cannot play basketball right now. Yeah. And don't go to the all bench lineup for an extended period of time, but especially if you're down 10 already. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, crowd's been amazing. I'm the, the DX, the Triple H doing the bell ringer <laughs> was, it was such an amazing moment. And I don't even care if you're not a wrestling person. I'm not a wrestling person by any means. I, I'm not either. But having your star player come out with with anyone, but like a famous wrestler, so that's that's cool for the people that like really get into wrestling, and that was a thing for them just to have Triple H out there. But to have him in it in a t-shirt doing that, like doing the chop before the your game one of your series, like that's just good entertainment. Um, I don't yeah. care. It it's it's just amazing. The, the the vibes around the Sixers team right now it's it's awesome and and he wasn't even a sure thing to play so it was like an hour before the game we learned he was going to play and then a half hour later he's out in the uh in the t-shirt doing the chop and with the sledgehammer and everything like just an amazing moment <laughs> they, like kudos to whoever organized that for mm-hmm. for the game one it and it was just it was kind of mind blowing that after all that they they decided to to have their worst quarter of the playoffs. <laughs> it was an interesting choice for sure. Um, and, and yeah, Embiid's actually moving around pretty. He he's looked fine moving around. He's definitely playing fine. It's just more of like you're holding your breath even more every time he falls. Um, yeah. And- 
What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One thing I wanted to say about that bench lineup in game one. So individual net ratings, like first of all, net ratings are based on a lineup of your team. Like it usually shouldn't be used, but I just think it's hilarious to look at these. Like I'm going to read off five numbers for you. Negative 22.8, negative 30, negative 72, negative 57.4, negative 78.9. Those are the individual net ratings per 100 possessions of Matisse, Maxi, George Hill, Furcon, and Dwight in game one, which, you know. Feels right. It's <laughs> Having like, watched the game. <laughs> negative, if you were on pace to get outscored by 79 points per 100 possessions with a guy on the court, that is a rough sign of thankfully Dwight finally got a little bit back on track along with shake in game two towards the end there. Um, well, it was thanks to shake 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 yeah. threw him that, that great alley-oop. Um, so kind of got Dwight into it. And then uh, it was one of those Kobe assists where shake drove, drew all the defense yeah. and, and missed on the drive. But because he had drawn so much attention, Dwight was free to get the offensive rebound and put it back. So Thank you, Shake, for also getting Dwight Howard um, back into the series. It is hard with Dwight just because, like, Dwight does foul so much. It's, again, very blatant that he's pushing off going for rebounds. And then, additionally, like, I feel like he sometimes needs a compass when he's going up near the rim because he's, like, throwing the ball in the wrong direction sometimes. Like, <laughs> it feels like, Dwight, my guy, the box is, you know, it's, like, very back to the simple things or Taz's kid. Like, the box is right there. If you hit it off the box for a layup, it's probably going in. And – yet he can't seem to get it all the time. Got a little more in game two, but like in the wizard series in, in game one, it wasn't going as well. I feel like he's just in such a frenzy, like going after the offensive rebound. It's just like, there's not enough oxygen to, to like reset and think, okay, now I have to do this incredibly delicate thing, which is tossing this ball through the cylinder. It's just like a uh, bull in a china shop, get the ball, get the ball, get the ball. Like, okay, I got the ball. I've, I like went through three guys. Guys are still kind of hanging on me. Um, all right, now I have to like completely switch gears and do this finesse thing. I just, I just don't think he can switch that quickly enough. It makes you appreciate <laughs> like the Robin Lopez jump hook, which is unbelievably <laughs> under control for how he gets it off. I, which I think, I think Robin Lopez is, is still somewhere in a gym shooting 68% on those jump hooks right now he's really really <laughs> good at them um one thing i wanted to talk about is that so uh, like i think we i was gonna mention this earlier but we kind of got a little off track um with danny like even if you don't think think danny's been detrimental he has been struggling and they did at times close i think 
toward the fourth quarter in game two, like they put Matisse in for him with the starters and even looked in, in a little bit at like um, back on cleaning the glass. So four regular season lineups that played over 100 possessions, the Ben shake Seth, Toby and B lineup actually finished the year as the best 100 plus possession lineup in the NBA at plus 57.3, which still too way too small of a sample size, but like still pretty good. And I'm just wondering what are your thoughts on them? maybe closing some games with either say they're thinking like we really need our most athletic defenders out here along with Seth who like juices the offense with his incredible shooting. And do we want to throw in Ben and Ben Matisse, Seth, Seth Toby and Embiid to close, or like you said, we could be shake instead just because you have another guy who, if a team runs at him off the line, you know, we joked before Danny green doesn't side dribble. He just leans further to one direction. Whereas shake, like if you run, maybe shake dribbles by someone and gets a layup, like, do you, do you think we'll see more of that going forward? I don't think we'll see a shake closing lineup because mm-hmm. if Joel's on the court, it's going through Joel. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't need shake to be or, creating or, or Tobias to be fair. Right? Yeah, sure. Um, so you already have your top two kind of closers on the court. Like shake kind of feels extraneous at that point, and he's not he's not like he's an elite floor spacer like around those guys. So. I think Doc would be more inclined to just have Danny out there because Danny is a, you know, he's struggling the series, but traditionally he's a, a good spot up shooter and he gives you more defensively than Jake does. Uh, so I think that would be the case. Um, you could see a Matisse closing lineup if maybe Ben's in foul trouble down the stretch. You want to, you want to make sure he stays in the game. Uh, so Matisse would go on Trey or just if you need another elite defender out there Matisse could be on, on the court with with the starters um I otherwise I I know everyone's down on Danny because he's had two bad games but he had a good series against Washington I think he did a good job defensively in game two and he, you know he's icy hot that's that was his nickname in San Antonio he's, he's going <laughs> he's going to have cold stretches so we just got to kind of wait it out and he'll he'll get hot again so and as you said the starters have one of the best net ratings in the league. So I don't see why you would really go away from it. I don't, I don't think you need to get too cute shake shake emerging in game two is great because the bench lineups are, have been so dreadful. And, and so, it was to be fair, also great because shake had basically had the worst first six games of a playoff stretch possible. And then he just kept like, like he literally was the undertaker and that one get just rising yeah. up like out of nowhere. Yeah. I think he was four for 19 before Ooh. game two in the playoffs. Um, so yeah, uh, it's great because he helps those bench lineup minutes, but I don't think it it was ever necessary for Shake to emerge to then pair with the starters down the stretch. I think the starters are fine. You don't need to mess with anything there. Mm-hmm. I, I will say just the one thing that we like, we, I think we can both agree on is Danny has to stop of those heat check, the I'm not hot, but heat check, transition three above the break anyways <laughs> off the dribble like it, it is like the one I mean like it's unnecessary that there's no reason for this like you you don't need to shoot this right now yeah especially Not, if you're you're like one you're, for eight in the series yeah like we let we're okay <laughs> the shake was shake doing because shake hit like his first four threes he had yes. just hit the he hit the deep buzzer beater to end the third quarter like shake was due for a heat check Danny, you're not all when you missed your first seven threes. You are not like this is not the time to like test the waters on how ambitious you can get on your shots. Yeah, exactly. If 
if you hit three threes in a row or something, Danny, then you can go back to that. But until then, cool it. Like the heat check in transition against the Wizards was adorable because you were actually shooting really well. And it was funny how bad it missed because you actually had been shooting really well before that. It's not as adorable when you're down 15 to the Hawks in the third quarter of game one, and they could really use like a good Embiid face up right now. Yes. Ex- yeah. And I, I would be surprised if we saw it going forward. So um, I, I'm, I'm still optimistic about Danny in this series. I don't, I don't think uh, everyone is, is very quick to like bench Danny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that is necessarily warranted. Yeah, no, and I still, like you said, like teams still respect him as a shooter. They're still going to close out on him. Defensively, he's still got really great length. He can bother teams with just how, all those reach arounds. Um, I, I was a little, like, do you think they'll ever break out that press again that they did in game one that worked so well? Or it feels like it was so, like, I kept tweeting out the thing, like the Sixers have never played in a normal game. That was such a weird fourth quarter. Like, I didn't even know the refs stopped calling fouls on, like, both teams. Every, everything was flying everywhere. Everything was happening at the same time. I, I didn't even know what to make of it. It was bizarre. Um, I, I to, to your first question, I I don't think that will ever be something they go back to, barring there's five minutes left again and they're down double digits, just because Embiid's knee, mm-hmm. I think. Doc, Doc kind of specifically said after the game, like that was asking so much of him. You could tell be... when he when he committed the foul at the end, they called like the intentional. Like he was going, like it looked like he was about to hurt himself. Yeah, it it, it came right after there was. He was fighting for a defensive rebound, and he had to like kind of jump and contest putbacks like twice in a row very rapidly. And you could tell the knee was really bothering him after that sequence. He he was like he bent over and was like kind of rubbing it. Um, so yeah, I just think it, it's it's hard to imagine them ever saying, all right, we're going to do this on a more regular basis because I, with Joel already carrying all the def- offensive load for you, for him to be having to move around the court that quickly in a defensive capacity too, is it's just really hard. Um, and I think they've, they've already hit on a, a good defensive scheme. It's just bend on Trey and be a little more aggressive coming out high on him. And I, I think that will work for, fine for them. I, I don't think the press is something they really need to go to. Yeah, and I think, like, like because obviously the thing is that they, like, in game one, they couldn't guard Trey at all. He was picking him apart, and people have to realize, you might not like Trey. Trey is a fantastic basketball player. The The way he can just, it's something, it's just with the handle, he can get to wherever he wants, basically, and then he's smart enough and has good enough touch on different kinds of shots and passes that it just, you have that much skill and that much speed in one player. It's very hard to stop them. And especially if you put good players around them who can finish off either threes or dunks like they have. So I mean, like with Trey, but the good thing about Ben is just, you think like Trey's obviously had the reputation of, Oh, this really deep range shooter. And yeah, like Trey can definitely shoot, but I would prefer like Ben just keeping him in front and living with the shooting variants off the dribble from Trey on like pull up threes, which he'll make some for sure. But I think that's better than, we're always behind Trey. He's got a step on you and then it's a two on one and he's never going to choose wrong. Cause he's that kind of a decision maker. I would much prefer just if Trey young makes 10 threes and beats them, like I won't be happy, but I'll be like, you know, sometimes like guys get hot. Like that happens. If Trey young gets like five floaters, four lobs and seven skip passes for threes, I'm going to be a little upset with how they defended him. 
Sure. And, you know, Ben being 6'10", that cuts down on the amount of space that yeah, like Trey one, has available to get those shots off. The one and, three he blocked was incredible yeah. how he got on that. Yeah, exactly. So that that's what the length that Ben affords you allows you to do defensively, um, where he can be a little farther away from Trey and still be able to contest the shot. But yeah, you, they have to try to keep Trey out of the paint. And that was the problem in game one, A, because they didn't have a good scheme to kind of combat those double drags that Atlanta was running. And it seemed like they were doing a better job with that in game two, but B like Danny was just, even when they weren't doing pick and roll stuff, he was just getting beat off the dribble by Trey. Danny is Danny's honestly not bad. It's just that like if Ben or Matisse guesses wrong for a second when guarding a guy with that level of handle, they're so athletic and long that they can still recover enough to either bother the shot or make some crazy play. Danny, younger Danny green probably could have done it. Older Danny green. If he guesses wrong on one tray on crossover, like he's not getting back in the play. He's just not, he's yeah, not going to get there in time. So now it's like, all right, Embiid, you're, there's two guys here. You're up on both of them. Everyone else don't help off too much from the skip, but help enough to dive down here. It's like, everything's out of whack. Your whole defense is in rotation. Like that whole game was just frustrating. Cause it was like the Sixers rotating frantically constantly. And they are good at that because they have a lot of great athletes who cover a lot of distance and they do it better than some other teams, but it's still not good when the Hawks basically could get all five players on the Sixers moving whenever they wanted to. Yeah. And it was frustrating because it felt like such an obvious adjustment and it didn't really happen um, nearly quickly enough. <laughs> Watching Danny Green get lit up by Trey was like the, this is fine dog. And doc was that. Yeah. We were, we were all shouting at him. This is not fine. And he was, he was okay to watch the carnage unfold. Yeah, um, it, it was really frustrating that first half. Um, th- this would be also be a good point since we're talking about Trey getting into the paint to just mention that in addition to carrying the offense and scoring 39 and a half a game, Joel has been outstanding defensively. Uh, I don't I don't know how he's he's doing it considering he's playing on a torn meniscus, but he's been doing a great job kind of stifling those plays in the lane where Trey or any other ball handler gets in and stopping those guys from getting to the rim, but also having the instincts to know when to get back and break up those lob attempts or, or anything else. Like there's been a couple times the Hawks have gotten him. Uh, the, and famously the one was the Cabela lob that then Embiid went down and immediately backed Cabela up to the rim and scored on him, which yeah. was, that, that was amazing. But yeah, like he's going to get beat a couple times because it's basketball. There's, dozens of possessions during the course of the game that he's out there for like offenses in the NBA now are really, <laughs> you're gonna give up <laughs> yeah exactly but Joel's been doing a terrific job of breaking those kind of plays up um he, even in spite of playing through the pain he's still an incredibly mobile defender like he had that one play in game two where he switched on to Trey when Trey came into lane and then Trey backed it out and Joel stuck to him out to the three-point line and then Trey was just like so frazzled by the whole thing that he threw the ball away for a turnover like having a big man that's able to do that that's does so much for your defense and he covers up a lot of mistakes for other guys and as you said with Matisse and Ben being able to still kind of defend guys on their back or their hip or whatever because they do have length and they do have great recovering ability like Joel being there also allows them to do that 
um, in a way that isn't the same when it's Dwight or they're in a small lineup. Uh, so just, I just wanted to mention that because we, we need to just marvel at how good Joel Embiid is on both ends of the court. Well, he did receive votes for defensive player of the year. As it, I mean, Ben Simmons finished second and Embiid received votes. Matisse got one third place vote. Contavious Caldwell Pope also got one third place vote, which I was like, oh, is someone just like, we're like it's it's like when the fans vote for like uh taco fall to be the all-star star it's like guys you realize this is why we can't have nice things like this <laughs> or, is this or is when the fans vote for derrick rose to be the mvp yeah. a first place mvp vote for derrick rose yeah but like <laughs> even that one i like understand because it's the fans like the fans are still allowed to do what they want like there was a credentialed media member who voted third place defensive player of the year contavious caldwell pope like i well, just have a lot of questions well, here's here. I here would be the answer they gave you. I imagine it's because the Lakers finished with the best defensive rating in the league. So, it in in a sense, it feels wrong that there's not a single Laker that received any. Well, like even even thirty, right? But he wasn't healthy, and they they still finished first. So it's not like there was an adjusted defensive rating. Oh, when Anthony Davis is available in games, then the Lakers are the best team in the league defensively. It was, they were the best team in the league defensively. Yeah, so, but that's the thing. Then you're just looking at the defensive rating. So you watch the Lakers. It's like, huh, they really rotate well. All these guys are pretty solid out there. They're really Vogel as them working hard instead of like, it must be KCP. He is the anchor of it all. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying he should be regarded by anyone as the third best defensive player in the league this year. I'm just saying that was the reasoning someone did. They said, Hey, who of, among the Lakers had the most consistently excellent defensive performance this season. I think it was him. They were the best defensive team in the league. I'm going to throw him a bone and give him the third place vote. It's like, whatever. It's a third place vote. It's, I don't think it really screws yeah. anything up too much. Yeah, and to speaking about other awards, Nikola Jokic took home the MVP. Joel Embiid finished second. I think we both talked about in the pod. We have both admiration for Jokic, and like I think he deserved it. I think he's incredible. The Nuggets are currently down 2-0 to the Suns, and but if you watch the games again, like no fault of Jokic. Jokic played pretty well. Um, it, the Nuggets got away against the Blazers. They very much look like a team right now who is missing their second best player, as well as other rotation players, and Michael Porter Jr.'s back is hurt. Like, yeah, they, they very much look like a team who's like Jokic and guys who are injured or not as good as Jamal Murray. Yeah, Porter Jr. has I, I didn't I don't know how much it's his back and how much it's just him and being in a slump. But yeah, him not being the guy that can light it up on, on offense. Uh, they just don't have a lot of options then to to kind of create offense for themselves. So then it's it's all on Jokic, and that's that's a tough burden against a, a team that has as many good long defenders as as Phoenix does. And Jokic is still playing well. Yeah, and he's still playing well. And yeah, Phoenix is just a good team. So they, they won their games at home. And as you said, Jamal Murray's out. Like this just could be the end of the road for Denver. And like there's that's not any huge knock against the regular season that Jokic had. Um, yeah, we all love Joel it's fine that you get one joel missed 30 percent of the season like that's that's just how these things work it doesn't mean it doesn't even mean Jokic is the better player than Embiid. it just means like these things are accounted for when you're talking about awards voting and that's it's just baked in it's fine and i would say like again to anyone else like don't discredit Jokic. like oh he only wants the availability like no Jokic had an incredible season yeah and 
that probably Embiid was the only one who could have challenged him if yeah. he had been playing enough. Like, there's, that's the reason Embiid got second. Yeah, Jokic was a top five player for 100% of the season. Embiid was a top five player for 70% of the season. Yeah, like, it matters. It, it, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, and then, but yeah, the Nuggets, like, I mean, also you have to give credit to the Suns because whew, they are on one right now. And the scariest thing is right now they have good Jay, Jay Crowder because good Jay Crowder and bad Jay Crowder are very different players. And when good, they have good Jay Crowder, now they're like very scary, scary good. Uh, bad Jay Crowder should wear one of those costume mustaches so we we can all be aware when you should he let is. us know which one it is going to be for <laughs> yeah. each so we like know what to expect <laughs> exactly that would that would help um but yeah they're they're playing really well right now uh honestly i i feel like they're probably the favorite to come out of the west um, i mean i still don't know who it's probably i mean everyone probably assumes at this point the nuggets look like they've run out of gas with just all their in, un, really unfortunate injury luck it's probably not gonna be them um the Clippers and Jazz will have game two tonight. We'll definitely know a little bit more after that. Jazz looked with it for a team without Mike Conley played and who started as poorly as did in game one, did a great job coming back. And then we have, I mean, we have to see if, are the Bucks going to wake up against the Nets? Cause it's game three. Like, and I wouldn't say it's not impossible because we've seen before, like the Bucks themselves basically dominated the Raptors in games one and two of the 2019 Eastern conference finals. And then the Raptors woke up in game three, the, or you go way back to like, the 2014 conference finals between the Thunder and the Spurs, where the Spurs killed the Thunder in games one, two, and then the Thunder came out in game three. They didn't win the series, but they made it a six game series because they just answered right back at home. Like, we're going to see tonight, like, what's are the Bucks up like this? Or, I mean, there is a case that even without James Harden, the Nets are just that good. Like, we both of us thought all along, like, <laughs> Kyrie and Durant are both playing out of their minds right now. And on top of that, all their role players seem to be in a groove right now, too. Yeah, Brooklyn's playing great. Um, I was a little surprised at after the Harden injury, how well they still and how easily they still handled Milwaukee in game two. It, it, is, it has been a rough time for the Chris Middleton hive. He is having a rough series. It has. Um, I, I still think like just a lot of uncreative things from Bud, like not doing enough to get guys moving and, and create uh windows of opportunity for them on offense just too much too much jeff teague <laughs> that, that, that jeff that's teague, an evergreen comment yeah the jeff teague brick in transition i tweeted about like i saw people were reacting like literally like an earthquake had just happened which it might have when he hit that side of the backboard on like that shot like it was that brick in transition just everyone was like oh my goodness what what on earth is going on right now and then you also remember like you look around the playoffs, like the Nuggets have had to start Austin Rivers, who's been fine for them. He was a free agent of the, the Bucks decided to pick up Teague instead of him. Cause I'm pretty sure there was like a lot of rumors that they might get Rivers. And then they also had Tory Craig on their roster the first half of the season, traded him to the Suns for cash considerations. He's in the Suns rotation and again had a really good game last night. Like it, there's just a lot of things where you look at the Bucks like, eh, this this could get ugly. And it's it's weird after they had they were the big winners of the first round where they just basically blasted the heat in four games and now we're saying like well this year this is like your last chance guys are you gonna wake up now or are the nets just that much better than you yeah it's definitely now or never for them if they they lose game three at home and fall behind it 3-0 that it's over uh, but you know it's a situation where I think they're still three and a half point favorites tonight. Uh, Brooklyn held serve at home, but 
if you just take care of business and you're in court, it can be a long series. So we'll see if they have some fight in them. I think without Harden, they definitely have the guys to match up with Brooklyn. Um, I just think they, they have to be a little more creative offensively themselves. Mm-hmm. So right now, if you had to like pick, like based on what you've seen so far, would you think we're going to see a net Suns finals? Cause that's what I got just talking to you right there. If Harden comes back for a Sixers series, yes. So if Harden's out, you would pick the Sixers. And that's yes. already, already assuming the Sixers beat the Hawks. Like, hey, I think the Sixers will win this series still. Well, you're I, asking me I, to make a prediction. Yeah, like, but I'm just saying, like, it's like none of these series even, like, the only one I feel pretty confident in, in right now, like, of what I know is going to happen is that I think the Suns pretty much have the Nuggets beat just because the Nuggets have run out of – the Nuggets are just running out of rotation players. They've played Marcus Howard a lot in the playoffs. Yeah, that's that's not going to cut it in the Western Conference semifinals. I'm sorry. So yeah, I I, I agree. I think I think Phoenix is advancing there. Um, so but, we'll we'll see we'll see the Clippers Jazz series could still be really interesting. Um, that was a well a hotly contested game one came down to the last possession there. Um, and I guess we'll see if the Bucks are dead or they have any fight left in them tonight. But yeah, I think the Harden injury would dictate whether i would stick with brooklyn as my final prediction um if not then i think suddenly the sixers have the defenders to combat uh brooklyn stars which i just think they had one too many guys for them with all with all of them healthy so um yeah we'll see we'll see how that shakes out but uh yeah obviously the sixers still need to perform well against atlanta but i think the game two adjustments which were obvious adjustments but they did make I, th- I think that bodes well for them moving forward and i still think sixers and six now yeah i the way things are going right now if you like forced me to pick i would say we might be getting a jazz nets finals it's still very close there's a lot of things that can happen still and again like i said the nuggets out of the 18th are left they're really the only ones where i feel like they just don't have enough left in the tank but I mean, it's going to be super close. Uh, we'll be back again next week, hopefully talking about, like, I mean, hopefully the Sixers will be up 3-1 by that point. Who knows? Um, well, but what's the – so, like, they play so – There's a lot – there's there's a large gap between okay. a couple of these games in the series. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. They play tomorrow on Friday. Then when is when are games four and five scheduled? So, game four – I just pulled it up. Give me a second. Uh, game four is on Monday. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple days off in between. And then game five is Wednesday. Game six is next Friday. So we'll be so, recording after game five. So yeah, the, game hope, six. the hope will be that the six Sixers, like <laughs> next time we talk, either up three, one and getting ready to hopefully get go up to, to maybe close out the series. Maybe it's tied to two disaster scenario. They're down three, one, and we're having an all out panic podcast, but we are going to. Very well, it'll be after game five. So it'll, well, it'll I, be, it could be three, it, two. Three, two, one way, or the six. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, never, never mind. I was getting my yeah, because I forgot about the one. This so yeah, because Wednesday would be game five. Yep. We usually record Thursday afternoon or Friday morning. So okay, that all makes sense. Well, maybe then we'll be talking about a conference finals matchup between the Sixers and the Nets by then. Which I mean, that would be pretty exciting if we get to talk about that. Like, just want to remind everybody, it is very hard to make the conference finals in the NBA. Just ask the Clippers; they have never done it. Yeah. And the Sixers, in my lifetime, I was born in 2001, 
just a few so like when Allen Iverson helped take the Sixers to the conference finals in 2001 I was just a few months old so I've basically never seen the Sixers in the conference finals this would be completely new to me so if they it's, can a, do it's it, a lot of fun Daniel <laughs> yeah, we're good like that's the thing like be excited like if they do this this is really special there's no like oh you just beat Atlanta this is like wow you are one of the four teams left in the NBA that's really hard to do it is uh I don't think we'll see what how it shakes out and obviously I think it's still a very wide open field and anything can happen I think the Sixers have a good as good a chance as anyone this year and I think that's that's why Embiid is you know playing through as much as he can like he 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 recognizes like this could be his big chance if this was last year they would probably just sit him yeah like he's he's playing through a lot of pain right now and it's because there's a window for this team and they they want to capitalize on it like Mm -hmm. i I, you you hear me saying i think they would lose to brooklyn in a series if brooklyn is healthy but it's like a 53 47 kind of margin when, when i'm doing these considerations in my head like the Sixers have a very legitimate shot this season mm-hmm. um so the, if they go to the conference finals and they do happen to lose in a tough series to a fully healthy Brooklyn team this has still been an incredible season like yeah they got the one seed they had a guy finish runner-up in MVP and a different guy finish runner-up in defensive player of the year they've would have reached the conference finals for the first time in a generation you just it's entered it's sports and yeah it's flags fly forever and title or bust for a lot of people's mindset and i get that but it's also a form of entertainment and this has been an incredibly fun and entertaining season and there's no shame if they did fall as one of the final four teams in the league Uh, only one team can win every year it's a very hard thing to do that is exactly right, Sean. I've, that's very well said. I have nothing else to add on to that. And yeah, we will hope, hopefully again be talking about the Sixers in the conference finals for the first time since 2001 the, but next week. But until then, uh, everyone have a safe week. And it's great to be back on the show this week. And yeah, talk to you next week, Sean. All right. Take care, everybody. Enjoy uh, the next few games in this Atlanta series. Take care. Bye, guys. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the PropG Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of PropG Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.